So before we jump into God's Word, uh, let's pray again. Father God, we thank you for this morning. God, may the truths that we just sang um, be also the message that our heart uh, wants to receive and to live out. And God, we pray that uh, we day by day realize that you are the only way um, back to the Father. Uh, that, that your son, uh, that, that all that we have, uh, this becoming alive, this becoming a new creation is only possible because of Jesus. And today, let us lean in to what he did to us, uh, did for us on Calvary's cross and what your Holy Spirit does in us on a daily basis. And God, as we, as we continue to become more committed and more passionate and compassionate disciple makers, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit just helps us understand and fuels us with a passion and a desire to chase after uh, those who do not know you. God, we love you, and we just ask that your spirit opens our hearts uh, in the next few minutes as we read uh, from your word and about your son. It's in his name we pray, amen. Last week, we started this series, Discover Disciple Making, and we used four chairs for uh, an illustration, but it's more than just an illustration. It always also gives us a foundation for how we want to build our disciple-making endeavors. It also gives us an evaluator uh, of where we may be sitting, and each seat represents a place in the disciple-making or even our sanctification journey. I, it just gives us an easy thing to remember, an easy evaluator, and e- a great foundation. Today, we're going to talk about this chair, uh, chair number one. We, and each of these we talked about last week represents a challenge that Jesus put in front of the disciples as he pulled them into a closer and closer and a more and more committed relationship with him. And this chair represents those to whom Jesus said, just come and see. This chair represents those who do not yet belong to Jesus Christ. They may be seeking, but they haven't placed their faith in him. And today, we are going to talk about those who may be sitting in this chair. Maybe you're in this room today. And we're going to talk about how we may minister to people in this chair. So wherever you are in your disciple journey today, in your, in your, in your journey of following after Christ today, I let the words of Jesus convict your heart this morning. Last week, we, we put this out here, chair one through four, and we said, this is Jesus' method. We want to imitate it. And the first thing that comes into my head when a pastor says, imitate Jesus' method, is you want me to do what? You want me to imitate what Jesus did? He was the Son of God. I may make an attempt at it, but I am going to fail miserably because he is God and I am not. I can't do what he did. I can't. I, I can give it a shot. I can maybe model it a little bit, but I'm going to. I'm going to forget step number two. I'm going to forget my words when I get in a situation. I just can't do it. To which Jesus said to you, John chapter fourteen and verse twelve. Truly, truly, right? Uh, when he says it twice, you better pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Hmm, sounds pretty good. I can do what Jesus did, but he didn't stop there because that is a comma and not a period. 
sorry, a semicolon and not a period, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Jesus said to his disciples, it's better for me to go than to stay because unless I go, the, the helper will not come. The Holy Spirit will not come. So not only is imitating Jesus' work possible, it's also expected. And Jesus gave us a model to follow and a huge, huge, huge part of that model and us accepting that model and our role in it is understanding who Jesus is and was. You see, because we say Jesus was fully man and fully God. We say that with our mouth. Have you ever stopped to consider that statement and what it means? Have you ever stopped to consider what it meant that Jesus was fully God and fully man? I've joked about it before and I, from, from right here uh, and, and talked about what it would have been like to grow up with Jesus as a sibling and how, like, okay, here comes Brother James running across the living room, right? And he's, he's, he's like, I'm going to tackle you, right, um, because you didn't take out the trash or something. And Jesus just sort of tickles, twitches his nose a little bit, and James trips, right? Or Mom, Mother Mary says, hey, will you take out the trash? And Jesus just sort of does a Harry Potter move, and the trash goes out and lands in the, out by the road. That's not right, right? Or maybe... We picture Jesus as sort of this Superman dude who whenever there's trouble, he, he starts looking for a phone booth and he unbuttons his shirt and you can start to see the S of reveal on his chest so that he can save the day. I don't think that's what it means when Jesus was fully God and fully man. We have to have this solid understanding of what that means if we are going to disciple like Jesus disciples. So let's try to wrap our minds around that for just a little bit this morning. Man messed up God's creation. That's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God created perfect. By chapter 3, man messed it up. So since man messed it up, only a man could restore us to the right relationship with God. Man broke it, man had to fix it. Unfortunately, we can read page after page after page. We can turn photo album page after photo album page and see man after man after man, history books where man has not been able to do this, has not been able to live a perfect life so that he can be a perfect sacrifice to restore all of humanity to a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Cannot, has not happened. But it's going to take a man, a perfect man, to redeem us all. So, after generations and generations of getting glimpses of what this Messiah might look like, of getting redemption for just a little bit of time in in our grand history, but then seeing the nation of Israel and God's people constantly turn their back on him, we see God come to earth. Jesus came and lived and lived life just like we did. Now, think about that. Think about Jesus growing up, of having to learn how to say dada, of of, of Mary holding him and letting him go, and Jesus wobbling and trying to walk. I mean, the dude who walked on water had to learn how to walk, first of all. Luke 2.52 tells us that he grew in every single way that we did, in, in, in stature and in wisdom and in favor with God and man. He had, to, he, he had to grow up just like we did. He had to experience puberty just like we did. He learned to trade just like we have to. 
He was tempted just like we were, just like we are, right? Hebrews chapter 4, we looked at this in the past few weeks. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every way, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that's what it took, was a man, a perfect man, to become the sacrifice for us. You can say, well, of course he did that because he was God. Yeah, but he was also fully human. And that's what makes him our Savior, is that he was man. And as mind-blowing as it is for me to imagine Jesus wobbling across the living room floor or, or learning how to speak or uh, learning how to, to recite uh, the, the, the scriptures, as mind-boggling as that is, the thing that just makes my head explode is that Jesus set aside his deity in order to live like you and me. Think about that, because that's what Paul tells us happened in Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, turn there. In Philippians chapter 2, in some of your Bibles, it's going to be set off as sort of a a, a poem. Um, In other Bibles, it's just included in a regular paragraph form. But this is a poem. It's called the Jesus poem. And starting in verse 5, Paul tells this church in Philippi this. He says, uh, have this mind among among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Verse Verse 7, but he emptied himself, all of his deity, all of that supernatural ability, he emptied himself of that by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus emptied himself by setting aside his deity, never becoming less than God, but setting aside his deity to live as a man, to take on our form. Think about what that means. We could spend a year of Sundays talking about that and wrestling with that. The one sheet, which is either online or hopefully you were handed one as you came in, uh, on the back is is an excerpt from the book, Four Chair Discipling. I encourage you to wrestle with that this week. What it means for Jesus to empty himself, to set aside his omniscience, his all-knowingness. Scripture tells us that he did not know that John the Baptist, his cousin, had been... Uh, murdered until someone came and told him. He set aside his omniscience and his omnipotence and his omnipresence. Remember when Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus died and they said to him, if only you had been here. Jesus set that aside to live life just like you and me, but only perfectly. It took a perfect man to redeem creation. In the beginning, God created perfection. Man destroyed perfection by thinking of ourself, of thinking about self rather than the greater good, of accepting a lie over the truth of God, and by seeing God's commands as restrictive rather than life-giving and liberating. 
And in doing so, they died. They died spiritually like that. They died physically from that moment until they took their last breath. And when they eventually die, and they would eventually die with death entering the scene. And church, we have become very adept at mimicking our first parents in this way. Of, of accepting, of looking more about self rather than the greater good. Uh, of uh, believing the lies of culture and Satan um, rather than the truths of God. Uh, and, and about seeing God's commands and his words as restrictive and, and his chains around our feet and our hands rather than life-giving and protecting. And we inherit the same consequences of sin. Physical death that every single one of us, unless Jesus returns and during our lifetime will experience. And a spiritual death that we all experience outside of Christ. We are dead without Christ. And that's what chair one represents for us this morning. And I want to ask you this, what can a dead man do? I wanted to say nothing but lay there and rot, but even that's not true because somebody places you in a coffin, somebody lowers you into a grave, somebody puts the dirt on top of you and then nature takes over and returns you to the dust from which you came. Dead men can do nothing. A physically dead body can do nothing and it's going to take some supernatural, God-centered power to move it. And if you want to see that, when you hear the trumpets blaring and you see something coming down, pay attention because you're going to have an opportunity to see just that. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Because a spiritually dead person needs that same outside help to come in and to make a change in him. The lost, the unsaved, those represented in chair one are not simply nice people who just need a little bit more love in their life. They, are, are, they don't simply need more positive vibes or they don't need more love and kindness or a better perspective or a different worldview. They don't need to just try a little bit harder. No, they are spiritually dead people who are incapable of knowing God through their own efforts. They're lying in a spiritual coffin, incapable of doing anything. And the Bible has much to say about this. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says that these people... Chair one type of people, follow the ways of this world, belong to the print to the ruler of the air. Not talking about God there, talking about Satan. And also in chat Ephesians 2, that these people are deserving of the wrath of God. In, in, in Romans chapter 8, these people are not just indifferent toward God, they are hostile toward God. They don't submit to God and are completely unable to do anything to submit to God. In fact, uh, Romans 5 and Romans 8 refers to the people who are, do not know God as enemies of God, who cannot please God no matter how hard they try. And when a person sitting in chair one dies a physical death, they're destined to eternity apart from God. That's what Scripture says about people who are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul gives us a pretty good picture as well uh, over in Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, as you read through this, as we read through this, uh, I want you to pay attention uh, to, to, the, to how Paul describes somebody who is outside a relationship with Jesus. 
But then I want you to also pay attention to the good news that Paul shares here. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse number 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. That hurts. Verse number four flips the story. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in the day of Christ Jesus. For by grace you have, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that none may boast. And he tells us, Paul there tells us everything that we have talked about so far. You did not, we cannot do this on our own. Somebody has to come in and change the game for us. And Jesus did that. It's a gift of God. If we agree with Paul's assessment in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, then we also have to accept the remedy he prescribes. But God, in his rich mercy, and that's the key. Uh, Dan Spader, uh, uh, the book that we've recommended to you, he says this, and I think this is powerful. The lost don't need to be rehabilitated. They need to be resurrected. We cannot live our way back into a great relationship with Jesus Christ. There's no amount of self-help, healthy living, fixing yourself, pop, pop culture, that will have even one iota of an effect on bringing us what we need. It is only through the gift of grace of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the only one who can show us that, who can make that possible, the only one who can resurrect us. I just want you to write down a couple of scriptures uh, f- uh, for, to look at in more detail. One is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 16. Um, actually, verse 17, I think this is on, on the screen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us. Jesus is the only way we can be reconciled. And if you keep reading past, uh, past eight, 17 into 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And this backs up, this next thing backs up what we talked about at the beginning, that we're not just expect, that we're, it's just not possible to chase after God's methods and Jesus' methods, but it's expected and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. And down in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors. We are to join in his work. We are to imitate his work. One more. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 11. 
Actually, verse 14 is on the board. Verse 11, though, if you go back up to it, as some of the funniest words in all the New Testament to me, it says, Paul writes here, he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It's like the, 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 the story of the, the soldier son who writes a letter home to mom, and he says, I'm writing this very, very slowly because I know you can't read very fast. He's, Paul, is, Paul is saying, listen to me. I am writing this in the, the, the giant Crayola crown in big letters. Pay attention to this. People are going to tell you, this is 12 and 13, people are going to tell you that, that work yourself out of the hole. Not possible. Even those who claim that can't do it. And in verse 14 he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And the only way that we become a new creation is through Jesus Christ. He is the only one who makes that possible. And in so doing that, he gives us an example to follow. So real quickly... I want to share two lists with you. The first one is uh, for those of us who are obediently ministering to people in chair number one, or especially this first point, if you're sitting in chair number one, watch how Jesus pursues you. First of all, Jesus left the comforts of heaven. Have you ever thought about that? He knew what he was stepping into, and he still decided to do it. And back in the Old Testament, God said to Abram, follow me. Abram didn't know where he was going. It was a mystery. There's some excitement to that. I'm going to follow God into the unknown. Jesus knew exactly what he was stepping into, and he still chose to do it because of the immense amount of love he had for you and me. He left heaven and entered into our world. He also learned the context and the culture that he was sent into. We don't see 12-year-old Jesus doing miracles all over the place. We just get a small picture of what he's going to be doing when he's in the temple, the house of God, doing his father's work. It's not until we, he's about 30 years old that we see him take the public scene and start to minister and heal and teach and preach. It's because he needed to learn what it meant to be a Jew living in that first century culture and context. He made himself available to people. Yes, in the last series, we, we looked at how Jesus often got away, sought out that eremos, that solitude and seclusion, but most of the time he was around people ministering, and he made himself available to people, and he intentionally developed relationships with others. We see that in a large group of disciples he had, a smaller group of 12 apostles. But even within that group of 12, we see Pete, Jim, and John, Peter, James, and John, who were, had the most intimate relationship with Jesus Christ on the planet. He, he had relationships with others, and he responded to those who showed interest. He didn't force himself on anybody, but those who opened, who showed interest, he stepped through that door. And those who stepped through the door, he challenged them by telling them to repent. Now, this is the model that we too can follow. We, we can. <laughs> we can, as we're, we're seeking to care for people who are in chair one, 
what they need more than anything else is for Christians to step into their world. For Christians to love them enough to enter into their world, to step out of their comfort zone in, in, in order uh, to, 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 to meet their needs. They need to know what's going around them in, in the cultural context. We need to know that so that we can understand what they're dealing with. If you live in Williamstown, what's going on in Williamstown Elementary and the high school? If you live in Marietta, what's going on? What are our kids dealing with? What, what's going on in our community? We need to enter into that context. And please, when you're looking for, for context, don't let CNN, ABC, NBC, or Fox give you how you're supposed to deal uh, with the world in front of us. Let them be, those are good indicators that the world's a mess. Right, but how about we not run to that, run to that for, our, for how we respond? How about we respond by what this book tells us or what godly men and women tell us? I would encourage you to seek out, uh, if you're a podcast listener, listen to someone like Preston Sprinkle, who is the best at engaging with the culture around us. And he will say some things and his guests will say some things that you don't agree with. But it's helping us understand culture. Uh, go to a guy like Tim Keller, who is the best apologist that we have as a Christian right now, of how, how we can live out our life, our Christian life, in a secular world, about how, why Jesus is better. People like uh, Rebecca McLaughlin and, and, and Jackie Hill Perry. Check those people out. Listen to godly men and women for advice, not culture. Please. Put yourself in, or put yourself out there. Make yourself available just as Jesus did. But you say, that's not safe. Yeah, I know. There's a, there's a, there's a quote that's been accredited, been credited to people like John Shedd and Grace Hopper and even Albert Einstein, that a ship in the harbor is safe. That's true. It's there. It's tied to the dock. Can't, can't float away. Right? It is safe right there. But ships aren't made for the harbor. And neither are you. We were not made to stay all the time in our little Christian communities. We were told, chair four, to go and bear fruit. We need to develop relationships. Um, we're, I'm going to ask you in a few weeks to dig deep into this one. How many lost friends do you have? How many friends do you have that are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ? How can we, church, fulfill the great commitment, great commission if we don't have friends who don't know Jesus Christ? Yes, we want to be around Christian brothers and sisters because there's strength and security and encouragement there. But if we don't have friends who are not yet believers, we are not fulfilling our role as believers. And as you develop those relationships, and your relationship deepens, it gives you the opportunity and the permission to talk about tougher stuff with them, to, to, to talk about, and then you have the freedom and the responsibility and the opportunity to talk to them about the struggles of life, and you get to introduce them to this person named Jesus. And as that, that relationship deepens and deepens and deepens, you are given the opportunity, and you have the responsibility to call them to repentance. It was a message John the Baptist preached. It's a message Jesus Christ preached. Every single uh, epistle talks about it, right? And we have to carry that as well. A few guiding principles as we wrap up. 
The first one, remember what you're asking of this person. It's simply come and see. It's, it's not, hey, come and give your money, come and give your time, come and give your heart, come and give your head. It's not any of that. It's just simply come and see. You know what would be a perfect opportunity for you to say to your friends, come and see? Family Easter experience. Come for dinner. Right? You even pick up the bill. Right? Come for dinner and hear an amazing story. And wouldn't it be awesome that if we double, tripled, quadrupled the number of people who put their faith in Jesus Christ from last year to this, through that one story. It's easy to say, come and see, but dealing with, with a lost person is a process. Man, I love those powerful stories where somebody was on this, tra- this, this path and God used some event, some person, some word, some pastor, some speaker to just change their event like you're, or change their life like you're changing uh, or flipping a light switch. And they were different from that point forward, but for most people it doesn't happen that way. It is a process. So don't get discouraged in the process. Answer the questions. Do life with. Right? Spend time with. Right? Dig into Scripture together. Right? Answer questions. And saying I know is sometimes the most powerful answer you can give to a question that has been asked to you. But in all that, remember that Jesus is the only way. That's a bold statement, but it's also a freeing statement for us because it reminds us that it's not our responsibility to change anybody's attitude because we can't change anybody into a new creation. It's only through Jesus. And dealing with those who are seeking Jesus, who are outside of a relationship with Jesus, best happens with an attitude of love. Not get into an argument to win the argument but to approach the relationship because you love this person at least enough that you don't want to see them spend eternity separated from God in eternal torment. In order for us to, 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 to minister, to, to, to share our faith, to, fill, to, 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 to form relationships, we need to be healthy too. That's why that last series is important. You need to be important. You need to be digging in to God's word. You need to be spending time with the Father so that you can be empowered and emboldened. And this is best, again, best accomplished through relationship. And we reap in proportion to what we sow. Uh, I'm, I'm taking over the family farm, and I'm trying to figure out uh, a way, Lindsay, to make a little bit of money to pay the taxes on it. Uh, so I'm looking at, I thought about alfalfa. So I looked at alfalfa, and I said, okay, for each acre, you need 18 to 20 pounds of seed. Right? Sounds like a lot. It is a lot. It's expensive. But you know what? 18 to 20 pounds of alfalfa at, 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 the, at the least amount if my soil is terrible, if weeds pop up, I can still expect to get about 200 pounds of yield out of that 18 to 20 pounds. Now, if I do the work and I, and I make sure the ground is fertilized and I, I, I till it the right way and I make sure I move off all the invasive species, then I can get up to 1,000, right? And it's just not a, a, an alfalfa example. It's a biblical truth that we reap what we sow. We can see Jesus talk about that fact. You see, it is God's job to prepare hearts, to draw people in. That's what the Gospel of John chapter 6 tells us. 
Right? Jesus says, no, one's coming to, no, no one comes to me unless the Father brings them. God is doing that. He's, he's the first encounter. We think sometimes we're the first conversation or the, the, the first uh, introduction to the gospel. No, God has already been working on that person. We, we are just simply the follow-up team. No one comes to the Father unless God, or no one comes to Christ unless the Father allows him. John chapter 16 reminds us of the Holy Spirit's um, responsibility and his job. It's to convict the world of sin. It's to make them realize that the way that I'm living is wrong. It's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is to cultivate and to plant, to form that relationship, uh, to get ready for a harvest. And our, our reaping is beneficial or is proportional to our sowing. The goal of our mission is whether it's us to move from chair one to chair two. If we are, if we are sitting in any other chair, our goal as a Christian is to help somebody else. Move from chair one to chair two. Don't, don't, don't like try to get overwhelmed by, I have to instantly go from here to four. No. We see Jesus over the course of three and a half years taking a group of men who weren't his disciples from here to chair two to chair three with more responsibility to finally in chair four saying go and bear fruit. So my question for you this morning is the same as it was last week. In which chair do you sit? If it's chair one, if today you find yourself sitting here, I pray that today is the day that you accept Jesus Christ. There is no secret prayer that has to be prayed. There is no one person who has to pray to usher you into the kingdom of heaven. That can be a relationship between, that can be an encounter between you and Jesus Christ. If you're here, though, I pray that today is that day. Today, if we find ourselves in any of the other chairs leading uh, uh, past chair one and we find ourselves getting stuck, what's hindering us from moving to another chair? Is it insecurity? Is it sin? Is it just stubbornness or frustration? Wherever you sit this morning, I pray that God working in your life, the Spirit convicting you of sin, leads you to fall to your knees, literally or figuratively, and cry out to Jesus, I need you.